0: Love, told Radio <laughs>
1: security for birds program and editor-in-chief of Chicken Whisperer magazine. Each week I welcome experts in their field to share their knowledge about different topics including backyard poultry, show poultry, heritage poultry, gardening, cooking, and of course living a self-sufficient lifestyle. Be sure to visit us online at chickenwhisperer.com, where you can follow us on Twitter, become a fan on Facebook, and subscribe to the totally free digital edition. Of Chicken Whisperer magazine, which just happened to be released the 2016 spring issue last week. So, hey, we got a great show lined up to you today. Thanks for tuning in. We have poultry veterinarian Dr. Maurice Batiski. Today's topic is a hot one, as tis the season, coccidiosis. So, we'll be learning about that. So, uh, um, uh, let's get ready for the show. At Combot Feeds, Our layer pellets and crumbles are all-natural, antibiotic-free, with no animal byproducts. Formulated just for laying hens, our feed is fortified with essential amino acids and calcium to ensure maximum production of nutritious, tasty, strong-shelled eggs. From our family to yours, feed your hens the way nature intended. Pure, wholesome, goodness. Kalmbach Feeds. Find a dealer at KalmbachFeeds.com. That's K-A-L-M-B-A-C-H feeds.com or order your layer pellets and crumbles today on amazon.com Combat Feeds is a proud sponsor of the Chicken Whisperer. All hey, right. I've got uh really just a little bit of chickens in the news and it's uh <laughs> it's just one of those things that we've been doing for probably about a decade now so our longtime regular listeners um, you know what I'm talking about, and I apologize. It's it's kind of like a, what's the old term, beating a dead horse. Uh, I went over to uh, Google Alerts, uh, News Alerts today and just typed in the very simple phrase, chicken coop fire, and then, of course, started counting all the chicken coop fires that occurred in February that were caused by a dangerous heat lamp. Look at one right now, chicken coop heat lamp sparks fire, at Pleasant Grove home which caused eighty to one hundred thousand dollars in damage. Okay, why? Four chickens dollars. And I'm gonna tell you this a sweeter heater and a Brenty um Brincy, uh, Brincy Eco Glow rotor heater, they don't cost a hundred thousand dollars. I can tell you right now. They're more expensive than a heat lamp. Yep, that $9 heat lamp you bought at the farm store that just caused $100,000 in damage because you felt the need to heat your coop. Um, we're looking at the, the very largest sweeter heater, I think comes in at $129. The largest EcoGlow 50, I think comes in at about $129. It may be 149 $149, not $149,000. Um, I'm willing to jump out uh, of the boat here, walk out on a limb, and and probably tell you that this family's homeowner's insurance deductible was more than $149, not to mention the aggravation, the, the memories that were lost, um, the tra- traumatic issue of having your house burned down uh because they wanted to use a nine dollar heat lamp instead of a safer heat source for their chickens. So now as we're getting into spring, we're talking about coccidiosis, hot hot topic for a hot, hot time. Um, thousands of baby chicks are going home right as we speak from the farm stores, feed and seed stores, which means thousands of these dangerous heat lamps are being sold at nine dollars and ninety five cents. And And many of them um, have no idea the risks involved with that. Why is this so passionate for me? Because I am the one that posts about the house fires every spring with brooders. I'm the one that posts about all the coop fires in the um, winter with coops. I I mean, really, type in chicken coop fire in Google. And then when it comes up, click on the little news button. Okay? And uh, you will see page after page after page. I'm going down right now. Um, uh, Purple Cat's Chicken Coop catches fire. Fire rips through uh, uh, Chicken Coop. Home damage. Chickens perish in Chicken Coop. Fire caused by heat lamp. Uh, chicken Coop heat lamp uh, sparks fire. Present Grove home. Uh, next page. Chicken Coop fire damages Omaha house. Chickens and rabbits die. Monday night Chicken Coop Fire. Um chicken coop fire under investigation uh fire destroys chicken coop and chickens in geneva fire damages chicken coop in troy uh fire kills chickens and destroys coop in southwest fresno twenty five chickens killed overnight in potomac uh potomac fire of the potomac, potomac river um chicken coop in garage catch fire in spokane barn destroyed at woodmont country club um and then that's just two pages Let's go to page number three. You get my point. <laughs> it's uh and it's discouraging because we've been trying to educate folks for 10 years on this um and uh and even more tragic news i know that this is not the very first time in the history of the world that uh life has been taken because of a dangerous heat lamp uh whether it was used or or improperly or or what have you but i believe it was last week uh, the very unfortunate circumstances, and I posted this on my Facebook page. Maybe it was two weeks ago. I'm um, scrolling down my Facebook and Yeah, heat lamp blamed for fatal, not just fatal to the chickens, but fatal for a local veterinarian that had baby chicks apparently in her bedroom with a heat lamp, and something had happened. The house burnt to the ground and uh, actually killed this young lady, a uh, veterinarian. Uh, in Bar Harbor, Maine, the likely cause of a house fire, they claim the life of a local veterinarian. Wednesday is a heat lamp that was being used to keep a box of baby chicks warm inside her house. Um, and you probably saw this when I posted it. This is the first time in a decade that I have seen. I mean, I, I know they're out there and someone had. Uh, alluded to, uh, no um, uh, family was was uh, killed, but they had to heat lats over rabbits. So this is the first time I personally have seen in over a decade of warning people about this, where uh, human life had been taken, and year after year after year on tour, when I'm speaking to individuals live in person, I say, I dread the day that I have to report when human life is lost because of this mistake, and this is uh, my biggest pet peeve because I've been begging people to get away from these $9 heat lamps. And then all you got to do is Google search chicken coop fire and you'll see why. And i and you can say, Oh, it won't happen to me. That'll i have been using them for 30 years. That'll never happen to me. Baloney. Um, I wonder how many people said, uh, who's had a coop fire in the last 10 years uh, that have said at one point or the other, that'll never happen to me. Um, it's just one of those things. And look, I try to be realistic. We're not going to talk everybody out of using a ten-dollar heat lamp, why? Because they're ten bucks. I get that. But if you're going to use that heat lamp, okay, if you're going to make that decision, um, you've got to secure it better. They're just the way they come out of the store. They are dangerous, folks. So what do we recommend? If you clamp that heat lamp to the edge of the brooder, guess what you're going to do next? You're going to duct tape that clamp to the brooder as well. Then you're gonna get another clamp, either a C-clamp or a spring clamp and clamp the brooder clamp that's already under duct tape, clamp right over that. So now you've got duct tape and another clamp. What else are we gonna do? We're not done yet. We're gonna get chain and S-hooks and we're gonna use that to also hang from the lamp to something above, ceiling joist, whatever you can secure it to, okay? So if that lamp itself falls into the shavings or the coop uh, or the brooder. Many things have to fail at the same time. The brooder lamp clamp has to fail. The duct tape has to fail. The extra spring clamp you put on it has to fail. And the chain has to break all at the same time for that to then fall in the shavings and burn your house down. But wait, there's more. Over the few years, whether this is because uh, more people are doing this, more people are buying heat lamps. Uh, it's always happened. We just didn't you know see it that much because the hobby wasn't that big the lifestyle, the chicken movement. Um but now we are seeing because of these red heat lamps, 125 and 250 watt heat lamps, because they are coming out of China, the adhesive, the glue that they are using, glass globe part of the bulb secured into the part that screws into the heat lamp, that adhesive, that glue, that's it's failing. That lamp is getting so hot And the cheap glue or adhesive they're using is failing. So now we've got little glass bulbs, uh, the glow part, falling out. And they're just dangling there in that heat lamp by two little filament wires, okay? Or they're falling all the way out of the heat lamp into the shavings and either starting a fire or breaking into a bazillion pieces. And you come home and all your chicks are eating glass. Not good. Glass is not uh, a nutritionally balanced uh, feed for your flock, and no, it would not work like grit, (laughs) okay, so um, now good, so now we're even having to educate folks, if you use this $9 heat lamp, then now you have to get either hardware cloth or chicken wire, go around the guard that comes with it, which is not small enough to keep the bulb from falling out, just to keep the bulb from falling out, because they're coming out of China, and the glue or adhesive they're using is so poor, okay, now does all that stuff we just described add up to one hundred and twenty nine dollars as a eco glow or a sweeter heater? Probably not. Okay. But it's still aggravating. You still don't need to really do all that. And then let's look at the energy savings. Two hundred and fifty watt light bulb burning six weeks <laughs> or however long. Um uh, versus the minimal energy consumption of a Brenty Eco Glow or a sweeter heater. It will pay for itself. Not to mention your one thousand dollar homeowner's deductible when your house burns down. So um, I was looking for some chickens in the news, and this just happened to poke me in the side as I was looking. I said, "Hey, let's see if fires had occurred since the last chickens in the news segment we did." And uh, voila, just absolutely staggering. So um, if you choose. Okay. And we're not going to talk everybody not out of not heating their coops uh, in the wintertime. We know that. Again, realistic. Um, you cannot argue with somebody that says, but Andy, I'll sleep better at night knowing my girls are toasty warm in their coop. Um, so if you do, for whatever reason, decide to heat that coop. Safe is the word. Not safety third, safety first. And then uh, the brooder, yep, those chicks need some more. You can do it safely, folks. It takes money to raise chickens properly. I got in this debate on one of the one of the uh, Facebook blogs as well. It takes money to raise chickens properly. Whether you don't want to pay for extra fencing to bury or, or, or a ditch, witch to bury the fencing down to keep make it predator proof, to have an appropriate coop, uh, whether to buy a, a heater that's not going to burn your house down. It takes money to raise backyard poultry properly. Okay. Um and that leads into our next can of worms of how many times are your chickens going to die from predators before you learn to spend the money on your coop, okay, to make it more predator proof. And it's interesting to see that when when uh, we've seen this pattern in over the years where somebody loses their whole flock or a half of their flock to a predator, and then their focus, once this happens, all of a sudden is focused on the animal, the predator. Oh, how can I trap this? What if I trap it? Where can I take it if I trap it? Can I shoot it? Am I allowed to shoot it? I know I can't do that to hawks and birds of prey, but how, you, know, it's, you know, if I catch this thing, this possum, this this raccoon, this uh, uh, weasel, whatever, you know, they they focus on this. How can I maybe uh, uh, you know uh, capture it, trap it humanely, and take it somewhere instead of focusing on. Because there'll be another possum. There's going to be another raccoon. There's going to be another uh, fish or cat. There's going to be una- focusing on, well, hey, wait a minute. Why don't I try to do what I should have done in the beginning and make, spend the money, um, build a more predator proof group and run. So if there's 14 other possums out there, it's not going to matter. Because I did the research, I did the due diligence, I did and spent the money that I needed to do to make my run, bearing that fence two feet deep, having poultry netting or wire across the top, um, having good welded wire, having uh, a coop that when you lock them in at night is secure. Instead of all of a sudden, oh no, I lost another chicken, I'm so sad, a predator attack. and uh, How'd they get in? show me a picture of your setup and we'll, we'll 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 figure out how this possum got in and then uh we'll figure out what we can do to prevent it from happening again because that's not the only possum in your backyard. Um so that that that's another can of worms that we talk about and we see on the blogs and forums a lot is this, the the number of predator attacks you there is totally uncalled for. Research, investment, it takes money to raise backyard chickens properly. Um, another thing that amazes me, I guess this is the, 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 <laughs> the Thursday rant is that it, it's amazing to me how many people will go out and spend $2,000 on a chicken coop, but when it's time to take the chicken, maybe to a vet and spend a hundred dollars, no, can't do that. It's way too much money. It's just a $3 chicken. Um, or they'll spend $2,000 on a chicken coop. And then when it comes to buying a $35 bottle of, of medicine, uh, that's recommended, no, that that's too much. I can't I can't afford that. But they got a two thousand dollar coop and chicken swing, chicken treats, they buy chicken clothes, but they, they'll spend money on the fun stuff. But when it comes down to the responsible treatment of their animals, your responsibility. These animals depend on you. They they don't do it. Now this doesn't include everybody. Some of y'all are like, That's not me. Um and I get that. This is not overall everybody in it this that we but we see this an awful lot so we're going to help you today take care of some of your backyard chickens (laughs) it is springtime and one of the biggest uh, um, terms you'll hear on blogs and forums out there and whatnot when spring and baby chicks and the brooder and whatnot uh, of course is coccidiosis and we've got uh, an awesome awesome guest today uh, Dr. Patiskey Um, And he's going to be here with us to discuss coccidiosis and and just kind of what is it? Best thing to do is probably try to prevent it. What are signs and symptoms so we can identify it? And then what we need to do if we suspect we might have it. So we're going to crack it down here in pretty simple format for you today. So get that pen and paper out. We're going to help you provide uh, some healthier backyard chickens for your family in your backyard with uh, Dr. Patiski. Maurice, thanks for joining us today. We appreciate you having on.
2: Yes, thank you for uh, having me here again, Andy. I appreciate it.
1: Yeah, thank you. Um, so coccidiosis, when we were talking about a topic for today, I'm thinking, hey, springtime, brooders, this is kind of goes hand in hand in the springtime. The first article you ever wrote for us uh, in the magazine was coccidiosis, spring of, I think, 2014, and I still share it. Very often, uh, for folks that often have questions about that. So I figured we don't think we've done it on the uh podcast uh with yourself, so I thought we would take advantage of that today.
2: Great. Well um I can give you kind of just a, a few basic um kind of background some background information, then we can kinda of answer some of the uh the questions that you um, that you kind of pointed out. Uh, first of all, I want to mm-hmm. say it was really interesting listening to the thing about the uh, the brooder fires. You know, I give a lot of talks to um, mm-hmm. backyard type mm-hmm. groups, and yeah. you, know, you focus. I, I, I something that I need to kind of recalibrate my talks to. I focus so much on taking care of the birds um, mm-hmm. that I don't really focus on you know what people need to do in order to make sure that um, they're obviously safe, and uh, that's something I'll start incorporating in my uh, in my talks about. Uh, Making sure that if they decide to use a brooder um that mm-hmm. um that they use the appropriate equipment um and use it appropriately, so thank you for it. It was good those yeah. sure do um you anyway, go. a couple of things yeah. sorry, go on Stop. you bet. no problem. <laughs> Oh, so a couple of things on coccidia. So uh, coccidia is the most common cause of death in young chickens. And uh, there was a study done at, through the University of California, UC Davis, uh, in 2012. And they looked at, we have a diagnostic lab in California, like most states do. Mm-hmm. And if you aren't aware, if people are not aware of their diagnostic labs and how to contact them, they should really find that information out because those diagnostic labs, are great resources for all kinds of reasons. For In California, for example, and we're not that much different than other states when it comes to uh, the resources available for backyard poultry enthusiasts, in California, for example, if you have a flock under 1,000 birds, you can submit dead or sick birds to the diagnostic lab, and most of the uh, diagnostic work, which can um, which can add up very quickly into sometimes even thousands of dollars, is done for free. So it's a great resource. People should really be aware of it. And uh, at the end of the day, if you can't figure out why your bird is sick and what it's dying of, whether it's nutritional or bacterial or viral or parasitic, um, like coccidia, for example, then you, you won't know how to f- protect the rest of your flock and how to protect mm-hmm. future flocks. So, in, in the study I was referring to by Gabriel Santias in the Diagnostic Lab, in the California Animal Health and Food Safety Diagnostic Lab, among other things, he identified um, the most common causes of backyard por- poultry mortality between 2001 and 2011. Not surprisingly, Mm -hmm. Merrick's disease was the most common. Mm -hmm. But if you look at the second most common um, reason for mortality in backyard birds, um, the second most common cause was coccidia. So coccidia is a really important disease to to deal with, and it's just something that we we need to be aware of in young birds. There is... Mm a lot of control that we can do, and I know we we always go back to especially when it comes to poultry diseases prevention 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 is really our our best friend and I think mm-hmm. at at the end of the day, when it comes to merrick's disease or coccidia or any kind of bacterial disease, um we always need to focus on prevention that's going to be our the, the lowest hanging fruit um that we can do and the great thing about prevention is if we do it appropriately um for the most part, when we do preventative measures against coccidia we're also um Getting the benefits when we're trying to reduce risk of salmonella or reduce risk of Merrick's disease, for example.
1: Awesome. Um, that was that was a ten, that was a ten year study, and by far number one was Marek's, and then number two, coccidiosis. Coccidiosis.
2: Yes. So mm-hmm. if you look at it just very briefly, um, Merricks disease was about twenty percent of all um, mortality that was submitted to the diagnostic lab. Um, by far the most important, and then coccidiosis was about 6%, but that was second. So, um, And we can go down the list another time just so we can um, kind of address some of the major ones at at, at a future point if you're interested.
1: That's very interesting. Yeah, yeah.
2: So... um, when we think about kind of the clinical signs of coccidiosis, um, the first of all, it, it affects primarily young birds. So we're typically dealing mm-hmm. with birds from about three to six weeks of age. Um, and there are nine different types of coccidia um, in chickens. And the important thing to realize is if you have turkeys, there's seven different types of coccidia. Um, And Mm -hmm. those types of coccidia are very species-specific, so the the types in chickens don't infect turkeys, and the types in turkeys don't infect chickens. They don't affect us at all, Um, but obviously they do affect um, chickens, especially young birds. And one point I want to make is, is, and I, I say this very often when it comes to uh, poultry diseases, don't make perfect the enemy of good. Good is really good, especially with coccidia control. You want some coccidia in the environment, but you just don't want a ton of coccidia in the environment. And mm-hmm. uh, the reason I say that is because if you're exposing birds to low numbers of coccidia, their natural immune system is going to do a great job of, 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 of fighting off those those parasites. Now, if you put them in an environment with a high load of coccidia, you're putting them at a competitive disadvantage, and now their immune system is not going to be able to fight it off so well, and they're more likely to get diseases. So you don't really want to raise your birds in a sterile environment, but you don't want to raise your birds in a really dirty environment, and the reality is you want to raise them in a nice, clean environment. Coccidia like nice, warm, moist conditions, like a lot of bacteria and a lot of viruses do. So when you have an environment in your poultry uh, coop or house, um, where you have a lot of water, moisture, and some warmth, um, then you can have a proliferation of the coccidia in the environment. Um, birds will it, it's tra- it, it, it's it's uh, it's transmitted via fecal oral route, so the birds will will ingest the. Um, coccidia parasite and it'll be a spore at that point and then it will proliferate inside their uh, inside their GI tract inside the intestines and then they'll poop that out um, and they'll create kind of a load of the parasite in the environment and then that can spread from bird to bird to bird at that point Um, so it's really important you know, not to beat a dead horse using uh, your your phrase a little earlier, it's really important to create an environment um, where it's a clean, dry environment. The one thing I do want to point out, I know we have a tendency to say, okay, dry is good, dry is good, so let's not do any moisture at all and i want to dissuade mm-hmm. viewers from that because if you create too dry an environment then the litter or whatever you're using as your substrate um can get too dusty and then you can cause aerosol problems and you don't want your birds or you breathing in too much dander uh too much particulate matter so there's this kind of fine line that you want to be able to balance and when you use when you when you're trying to decide okay how wet do i want my litter Um, you want the litter to be what we call friable. So you want to be able to pick up the litter material, whatever the substrate material, and you want to be able to kind of bunch it up almost into a ball, but not completely into a ball. It should kind of come apart. should be what we call friable. Um, If it's too moist, obviously you're creating an environment there for coccidia to proliferate. And if it's too moist, you might have an ammonia issue and ammonia you can obviously smell we we all kind of know that that
0: mm-hmm. that
2: very classic ammonia smell that's not good for us obviously it's also not good for the birds it can actually cause blindness in chickens and corne what via mm-hmm. corneal mm-hmm. ulcers um so you want that 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 environment to be right in the middle you want to create that dry relatively dry environment but not too not too dry because of the the dust issues that we that we talked about um and you want to have some just like with us, you want to have some dirt in the environment that they're exposed to. Obviously, with chickens, it's almost impossible unless you're in a laboratory to create a, a bird that's not exposed to any disease at all. But just when you're thinking about how fastidious some of your some of the listeners are, you kind of want to be in the middle there. You don't want to be too uh, – you want to err on the side of cleanliness, obviously, and, and being fastidious, but you don't want to be too far, um, too, too sterile. And what what I mean by that is you don't want to always change the litter over and over and over again. In a perfect world – the birds themselves will kind of manage the litter just by their natural um, behavior. But if you keep on taking out old litter and putting in new litter, you're not really allowing... Um, the you're you're creating a potential for new coccidia to come into the environment, and if you can keep that litter all the same through the life of the flock, in many ways that's the best situation possible because you've already have a nice ecology of coccidia that the birds have been exposed to, and you're not creating a, a blank slate for new bacteria, new parasites to move into that environment.
1: That's amazing because we've we've heard a, lo- a lot of times before that. Um, uh, a lot of folks have you know having a brooder that's too clean is is not the answer, but just kind of finding a balance with say good husbandry practices while they're in the litter but this this is kind of the first time for me as well to hear that maybe if we can find a way to we have the litter and we have it set up you are saying maybe six to eight weeks until they they go to say a grow out bin before they go to the coop to find there's maybe a way to keep that that same litter there
2: well i'd say in the brooder so what we call the cake of the of the Mm -hmm. of the litter just that top layer Mm -hmm. where the poop is
0: Mm -hmm.
2: you can remove that and it's totally appropriate to move that if the birds are exhibiting some of their natural behaviors they'll basically rototill that cake into um kind of your your, the Mm -hmm. litter itself which should be somewhat Mm -hmm. deep if perfect world if you can make it six eight right. inches then they'll they'll rototill it and compost it for you but if it smells bad um if they're not doing that because they're too young to or for whatever reason then mm-hmm. take by all means you should take that 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 quote-unquote cake off off of the um off the top layer um and and work with the remainder of it i think that'll still maintain the normal ecology i i'm not opposed mm-hmm. to putting in new litter but I, I think some backyarders are sometimes a little too fastidious and they're 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 erring on the side of putting in new litter, taking out the old litter. And when you do that you, you kinda run the risk of creating a new blank slate of of of, of bacteria and parasites there and new things can, can take over there that previously were kind of marginalized by some of the um non-pathogenic parasites and bacteria that were in that. So you don't want to kind of mess with something that's working pretty well, is, is kind of what... The yeah, would, is. Would,
1: would it be safe to, and we hate the word assume, but would it be safe to assume that would be kind of like, say, the deep litter method with, with coops that, that more that's gaining kind of more popularity with, with a lot of people, maybe adding a little, having them try to stir it up, maybe doing a little top dressing on occasion, Um uh, almost like the deep litter method we some use for their coops in the coop floor
2: um, I'd say yes. I'd say in general less is more. So the less uh-huh. that you have to do, that's probably the, the the better situation. But let's say you had a leak in your in your house or something like that. Um it was raining and water got in there and there's just a ton of moisture in that litter. That's a perfect situation for coccidia to potentially persist and to proliferate and we obviously don't want that. So it's kind of one of these things like everything in life where you have to use your best judgment. So, in a perfect world, if the if the house is if the, if the if the litter is managed well, hopefully we don't have to replace it too often. Um, okay. The water issue is a pretty significant one, and I know most people do not use nipple drinkers, um, mm-hmm. and at least in California, we don't see them as much. And there's advantages and disadvantages to all types of watering systems.
0: Mm-hmm. One of the advantages
2: to a nipple drinker is that you're less likely, typically, to get spillage of water. And uh, mm-hmm. one of the areas where you can have a lot of moisture, as most of us know, is around the waters because birds are a little messy when they're eating and drinking. And that <laughs> those areas with water in there can cause proliferation not only of coccidia but of bacteria also um, and some bacteria mm-hmm. that are zoonotic that affect us. So, you know, we have to think about what system we're using, um, how good those birds are at, uh, you know, not making too much of a mess. Um, I know, you know, anecdotally you'll hear from different people about different breeds of birds and how clean some are versus other are others are, but, you know, in, in general, philosophically, if you walk into a an house and it's it's dirty and you smell it, then the, there's something wrong with the litter. Either you have too many birds, mm-hmm. the density's too high, the litter's mm-hmm. not deep enough or the birds for whatever reason aren't managing that litter correctly or there was some environmental issue as far as you know water got in there from rain or you know your drinkers are 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 not are not working those nipple drinkers can leak also so you need to manage those appropriately mm-hmm. the issue that a lot of people including myself have with nipple drinkers and backyarders is that they don't always get cleaned as much on the inside and you can get biofilms that form in there um and you're basically feeding or uh through mm-hmm. through the um uh, the nipple drinkers you're feeding your birds a high load of bacteria and they can get sick and some of the bacteria can obviously affect us too so
1: there's no free pass there on um Changing the water frequently and actually cleaning, taking the time to go and clean uh, the inside. Let's say it's just something as simple as just a PVC pipe with some nipples on it that you created, you know, on a Saturday afternoon. You still got to get in there and uh, get that bacteria out there on a regular basis.
2: Yes, absolutely. I'd say at least once a week, you're going to need to flush a nipple drinker out. Um, <laughs> As, um, with kind of a dilute bleach solution um, in order to make sure that you're not getting any kind of buildup of bacteria, which can happen really quickly um, depending on, you know, all kinds of environmental issues, but it can happen very, very quickly. I,
1: I see a lot of um, people, they'll see a design, and, and, and I'll plug this for a second, like the, um, the chicken fountain, for example, and they'll take that vision and then go and, and make, one just in their basement. And one of the mistakes I think I've seen is they will say, oh, well, if I make the container, if if I make it hold more water, that's less time I have to to fill it up, especially if it's not, say, connected to a steady source of water. And what that eliminates is, or even if it is connected to a regular source, a continual source, if the container part is too big, then you don't have many birds, that... Water is not being, quote-unquote, recycled. It's not being changed out as often as it should either. So I think there's a science behind that where the nipple drinker, and if it's something that has hooks, say, to a garden hose, it still can be too big because you're not um, changing that water out. Because you have just a few, and I learned that when I went to order, say, uh, you know what, send me the biggest one, and I'll try that out. And 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 they were like, no, 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 that's not the best thing for your birds. Because if you only have four birds and you get this huge drinker, they're not uh, the water exchange is not where it should be to keep that water moving and a little bit more fresh and it's just sitting there stagnant because they're not moving it as often. So yeah, I think people get what I'm saying, but anyway, um, so yeah, there, I guess there's some, uh, uh, advantages of not going with the, the biggest, largest, uh, most awesome, uh, water, especially if you make it yourself. When that happens, I see a lot of folks going down that Avenue, which uh, I had learned several years ago myself. So, um, excellent <laughs> point regarding yeah, the, wa- the water and the, uh, uh, the brooder and the shavings, yes, yeah, sometimes just don't mix real well.
2: <laughs> yes, yes. So, just a couple more things. So, the uh, about just the basics of the disease. Um, so, as I said a little earlier, it's seen primarily in young birds, three to six weeks. As I mm-hmm. always tell people, the birds don't always read the book. So, um, if you do have birds <laughs> that are a little younger or a little older, um, that is normal, but you know, roughly, if you start seeing things like diarrhea, um, bloody diarrhea, dehydration, ruffled feathers, uh, what we call listlessness, um, and weakness mm-hmm. in that three to six week area, it is a pretty safe bet to assume that you're dealing with coccidia. Um, one of the things I think is interesting is that when we when I showed you that data, when I told you about that data about coccidia being the second most common source of mortality, Um, If you looked at morbidity, it would be very high, too. So morbidity is a fancy term for sickness, not death. So Mm -hmm. you basically will see coccidia. uh, It's ubiquitous in poultry environments, and you'll see it pretty much anywhere you grow poultry. Um, There is a little luck of the draw in the sense that of those nine different types or species of coccidia, um, some of them are worse than others. Um mm-hmm. so if you get exposed to one type of imeria, um you might not really even cause that much um diarrhea, no bloody diarrhea, no dehydration versus some of the other types uh of imeria, a, a. circulina, uh maxima, uh Tinella. those are the species that are typically associated with mortality. And the unfortunately sad part is if you're exposed to one of them, um, that doesn't give you immune protection against the others. So if you did have mm-hmm. a, a flock of birds, you took it to the diagnostic lab, they found out it had Tonella, and you're like, okay, at least that bird's. Got that one. So now I'm protected against coccidia because the rest of the flock didn't get sick. I'm Mm -hmm. assuming they all got exposed to that. But the reality Mm -hmm. is if there are other coccidias in that environment, then those other birds are completely susceptible to those also. So there is this complex ecology of different coccidias that the birds can get exposed to. And what I was kind of alluding to earlier is that in a perfect world, you probably want a very small amount of some of those more pathogenic ones, maybe a few more of some of the other ones in the environment. The birds get exposed to them very slowly below what we call the infectious dose, um, and below, significantly below what we call a lethal dose. And then the bird's normal immune system then can mount a pretty strong immune response to it, as opposed to that other scenario where you get a huge load of exposure to those. So it, it's almost a quantitative issue. How much are they actually getting exposed to, um, and are they nice and healthy? Because obviously when birds and humans are healthy, their immune systems are working well. When they're not healthy, their immune systems are not working that well. So it's really important that our birds are nice and healthy so their immune systems can work. Mm -hmm. And the point I was trying to make was that when they do get exposed to coccidia, um, the mortality rate is not very high. Um, They will get the dehydration and the ruffled feathers and the listlessness. That's a really big issue in the commercial poultry industry because there's an efficiency. You want the birds to have low feed conversion ratios. You want them to be healthy so they can get nice and strong and they can produce um, eggs and meat later on. For backyarders, it's it's a slightly different calculation also. But the important thing to realize is that even if your birds don't die of coccidia, you have suppressed their immune system now because they are trying to fight off that coccidia infection. And now they're going to become much more susceptible to several other diseases that might be in your environment, including E. coli, salmonella, Merrick's disease, et cetera, et cetera. So you can't just think like, well, coccidia, we had it. And, you know, it's, you can't just think of it as, as one specific disease. The reality with poultry is mm-hmm. typically if a bird dies, Um, you're having a combination of things happening. Uh, Usually if it's just E. coli, the birds can fight that off. But if you're dealing with E. coli and coccidia, or if you're dealing with infectious bursal disease and E. coli or coccidia, that's when you start getting those combinatorial kind of reactions that you start having some real significant disease issues. So coccidia by itself maybe not a huge mortality rate, but if they're fighting that off, and something else comes in there from the environment or from wildlife um, like you were talking about earlier Mm-hmm. All kinds of reasons we don't want wildlife in there. Not just um, predator issues, but they can also be sources of disease. Um, we mm-hmm. want to make sure that we're that rodents. Obviously, are huge, you know, kind of reservoirs mm-hmm. of disease. We want to make sure that they're not um, that 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 we're putting them in the best environment possible, so their immune systems are ready to go when they do get exposed to, in a perfect situation, low amounts of of any kind of pathogen.
1: Okay, so co- comment on on that little segment there. Um, you went back and we talked about diarrhea and then bloody diarrhea, but is there any color, like associated, and I say this because a lot of times you'll see, oh, they had green poop, oh, that's coccidiosis, so they'll have the yellow, and that's coccidiosis, so a lot of times in the blogs and forums out there, they try to, yeah, they get the bloody diarrhea and, and, and even just diarrhea in general, but a lot of people try to attach a color to uh, trying to identify coccidiosis. Is there a um, any studies that show any type of color for identifying coccidiosis?
2: So in the perfect world, so if you did have birds that were in that three to six week range, um, you have a couple options. So if you wanted to confirm that it's coccidia, which is is appropriate to consider, um, one thing you could do is submit the bird to a diagnostic lab or bring it to a veterinarian Mm -hmm. um, and the veterinarian Mm -hmm. euthanize that bird or if it was a dead bird they'd obviously um open up that dead bird look at the gut the nice thing about coccidia um is that for the nine different types of coccidia they all hang out in different parts of the gut um so if you find if you look at the gut and it looks really hemorrhagic and um basically uh unhealthy in one specific area of the gut you can kind of start already identifying what species of coccidia you're dealing with. Um, and then you can take like a little, um, basically a swab of that piece of gut, put it under a microscope and confirm that it's coccidia and the type of coccidia. And that's really important because not you want to treat the rest of your flock, obviously, appropriately. And that can give you some indication about what you might want to treat the rest of your flock with. Um, even though uh, the treatments aren't as effective as prevention. That's, again, why we always focus on mm-hmm. prevention so much. That being mm-hmm. said, with some of the – I mentioned um, – so Imeria is the fancy name for coccidia, and then there's different species. There's nine different species. So I mentioned tanella a little earlier. So for tanella, for example, blood is often apparent and um, in, mm-hmm. in the in the ceca and the feces in the early stages of the infection. But in the late stages of the infection, you get these kind of cheesy cecal cores, so you can't find that so much in the, the cecum is inside the intestine, mm-hmm. but for a pathologist they or a veterinarian, when they look in there, they can visually look at the gut and pretty much tell what type of coccidia they're dealing with. Mm-hmm. As far as, you know, when we look at the poop, the problem with any type of, um, even if it's a, a veterinarian looking at the feces, the problem is sometimes parasites are not always consistently shed in the feces. So sometimes you'll see something and sometimes you don't. Um and you know, basically in, in, in my mind, at least from my expertise, when you look at the, the feces, if a veterinarian did a what we call a fecal float, if they took a swab of poop, if they um then tried to um basically look at the uh the, the, the protozoa that are in that, that feces uh, if they didn't see anything, most pathologists, including myself as as epidemiologist, I would say as a veterinarian, would say, "Well, that doesn't prove that it's not there because it's sometimes intermittently fed, so if you see bloody feces, that doesn't really tell you whether you're dealing with Tonella or Maxima or Nicatrix. um I know you know sometimes when you go on some of these online forums there there are some you know, people that can kind of refine that down a little potentially, but I don't know if there's any studies that basically said based mm-hmm. upon the color of the feces that, that you can really identify okay. what, what species okay. of Imeria you're looking at.
1: My next question, and you hear this an awful lot, Doc, is that okay, I just went to Walmart, I bought this big Rubbermaid bin, I just bought these brand new shavings, I have my new water, my new feeder, I have my my uh heat source, and I just got my chickens brought home from the feed store um I just got a mail order to me from the hatchery I put them in there where's it coming from where, where you know how are they getting this it is already in their gut that they are already shedding and then actually eating it by eating the feed that's also in their poop that they that just came out of it where is these 3 to 6 week old chickens where is this um uh coming from? Because everything I just bought is brand new. The chicks just got mailed to me. So how's it getting into this brooder for the chicks to get this to begin with? That's a huge question that I hear a lot.
2: Right. So it's, 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 and that's a really interesting question. I, I think the, that the logic <laughs> is, is <laughs> it, and it's the same thing with salmonella. So, you know, if if you raise a bird that's called SPF or specific pathogen free, um, and that's literally raised in basically a um, these things called isolators. Sure, mm-hmm. I can prevent those birds from having any salmonella, E. coli, coccidia, et cetera, et cetera. But that's basically done. It's almost like a bubble boy, but it's a mm-hmm. bubble mm-hmm. situation. So mm-hmm. most people, when we're dealing with coccidia and salmonella, they ask that question. Well, where does it come from? I just got these... These birds and where did it come from. <laughs> the hatcheries that the birds come from are not perfect. They're well run. Usually, mm-hmm. most hatcheries mm-hmm. are from the national poultry are certified by the National Poultry Improvement Plan, which basically mm-hmm. implies, um, not implies, but basically uh, shows that they were doing certain biosecurity things. They were testing for various diseases, et cetera, et cetera. But I think there is a feeling that coccidia is ubiquitous in the environment, and when mm-hmm. the birds get exposed to either they're carrying maybe low loads of it already in their intestine from some type of um, uh, vertical transmission into the egg. And that's just part of their normal ecology. Mm -hmm. And if they're now in a bad environment, then they're going to start proliferating that parasite. There's maybe tiny amounts that they're exposed to, small amounts of salmonella that they're exposed to. And then when you put them in a poor environment, then they're going to get exposed to even more of them. So I think that's kind of the general logic. Same thing with Marek's disease virus, you know, people are always people are always asking, well, if I'm have a closed flock, um, you know, how am I getting exposure? Uh, the other thing to point out is that coccidia just like salmonella and just like pretty much any other virus, um, like Marek's disease for example, salmonella's obviously bacteria, but they can be um they they are they they can, the, the, probably one of the primary ways they get, they do get spread is via fomites, so via our shoes, um when we go out and about to feed stores and things like that we're using the same equipment the same clothing
0: mm-hmm.
2: when we go to those feed stores and when we bring them home um we're not using gloves we're not using dedicated clothes and i know you know it it's it's one of those things that it, it it is it is fairly well assumed and i agree with this that humans are probably the biggest fomites of all just because of, of mm-hmm. how much travel and how much we interact daily and our birds are in one place Um, Mm -hmm. So obviously wildlife can be a source of things, um, but humans going back and forth and going to your neighbors Mm. and going to feed stores and things like that can be a huge source of how diseases get from one place to another, specifically to our backyard coops.
1: Okay, yeah, interesting. That's a that's a hot question. Where did it come from? Everything is brand new, and I've got these chicks, and, and uh, what's going on here? So thanks for, you know, kind of clearing that up for us But there uh, is as that fecal
2: well. so oral route, so you do get this proliferation. Uh-huh. So if you, even if you have tiny loads of coccidia that are ca- are causing any problems at all, you know, it's really important to realize that you can get a huge amount of perforation, orders of magnitude. You know, you can literally go from single coccidia to millions of coccidia, in a matter of days, um, literally per square inch of of material that you're looking at if you just if you have that coccidia in the wrong environment. So, um and, and then birds can basically, you know, once those once those what they're called the um, the sporozoites, once the coccidia are inside the intestinal epithelium, that's when they go through their reproduction and they can basically lyse the intestinal cells and get shed in the feces and get consumed again in that fecal oral route and then you just go round and round and round and imagine that there's millions of cells in the in in each bird's intestine that are getting infected and then shedding these these these. Um, these sporozoites into the into the environment and then they they um then they form spores which become extremely resistant to the environment. So just like Merrick's disease for example, the spores um that are that are shed, once they sporulate in the environment for coccidia, they are extremely resistant to most disinfectants. Um, and if you don't have the right environmental conditions, they will. They can stay there for, depending on the literature, between 6 and 18 months. So one of the things people usually recommend is that if you can, move your coops around. Um, mm-hmm. Because if you have one corner of your backyard where you've always had your chickens
0: mm-hmm. and
2: um, you're getting a high load of organic material there with all the different um, diseases that potentially can be present there, in a perfect world, if you can periodically move that coop to different locations, Um, you're doing two things. You're basically starting from scratch in a a relatively cleaner area. And then the older area has what we call downtime. And that downtime, the longer you make that, the longer you let the sun kind of do its magic, and the longer you let nature do its magic, it'll kind of sterilize that area for you.
1: Okay, that's awesome. I'm going to take a commercial break, Doc. And uh, when we get back, we've kind of talked about... Uh, the signs of uh, when you're looking into the brooder, what what may clue you off to both the bird and and the and the waste from the bird of kind of cluing into maybe coccidiosis. We talked about getting a true diagnosis of that. We talked about the the many types, uh, the different types that there are, and um, and even kind of some things too try to prevent this from good husbandry practices and and changing out the litter so when we get back uh from commercial break we can talk a little bit about um once it's been identified, this is what we've got, kind of uh, maybe some treatments and routes to go there. Anything else you've got in your notes that you would like to share? Folks, today we are talking uh, with ordinary veterinarian Dr. Maurice Batiski from UC Davis, and we're talking about coccidiosis. Tis the season. Um, thousands of chicks are going home every day now across the country and to these brooders, and uh, as he just told us, uh, coccidiosis was kind of number two there on the... Uh, uh, the death rate, if you will, for these uh, backyard chickens and three to six weeks of age. So there will be more to come. Keep taking notes. Don't go away. We'll be back right after this uh, short break. When you need an incubator, think Brency, the incubation specialists. brency has been a world-leading manufacturer of quality incubators for almost 40 years. They manufacture incubators that hold anywhere from 7 to 380 eggs with high-quality electronic and digital controls, including precise humidity controls and programmable egg turning, all at surprisingly affordable prices. Enter the coupon code WHISPER at checkout and receive 10% off your entire order. Order your new incubator today at Brinsee.com. That's B-R-I-N-S-E-A.com. A capful a day directly into their water is all it takes for a stronger immune system. Introducing e-poultry, an all-natural, whey-based soluble that will help improve your flock's overall health. Made by farmers for farmers right here in the USA, e-poultry is a safe, all-natural way to give your birds the strong immune system they deserve. Learn more and purchase at www.eanimalproducts.com. That's www.eanimalproducts.com. Are you in the market for a new chicken coop? Want one that will outlast all the others? Then look no further than Urban Coop Company. All of their coops are made from appearance-grade western red cedar right here in the USA. Urban Coop Company coops are designed to be both beautiful and functional. I invite you to visit their website to learn about the many features of their coops and check out their integrated coop accessories that will make your life easier. They're passionate about building great coops because they know you're passionate about your backyard chickens. Visit their website at urbancoopcompany.com. That's urbancoopcompany.com. Ideal Poultry has been a family owned and operated business since 1937. Hi, I'm country music artist Nathan Osmond, and you're listening to Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer.
0: And the mighty bird against prejudice continues his fight for law and order. So when you hear that cry in the sky, you'll know it's Super Chicken.
1: All right, thank you very much for staying with us today on Backyard Poultry. The Chicken Whisperer brought to you by Combox Feeds. Our guest today is poultry veterinarian Dr. Maurice Patisky uh, out of UC Davis out in California. Today's topic, coccidiosis. We're all interested in that. Anybody who has backyard chicken should be interested in this. And uh, he did a great article for Chicken Whisperer Magazine. I think it was spring 2014. You can see that absolutely free online at chickenwhisperermagazine.com and hopefully you're taking lots of notes during today's show. So we'll bring uh, Dr. Patiski back on the show. Welcome back, Doc, and uh, we'll continue.
2: Um, So I think you wanted to chat a little about uh, some of the uh, treatment options, potentially. I think one thing we haven't talked Mm -hmm. about yet is Mm -hmm. um, medicated feed versus non-medicated feed. Mm -hmm. We talked a little earlier about the uh, chickens that were uh, chicks that are usually in that three- to six-week age range. Um, And those are usually the the area where we typically see some of the clinical signs that we talked about a little earlier. And the only thing I would mention is um, sometimes people get a little confused, I think, on whether to use medicated feed or not. Um, So the Mm -hmm. recommendation is typically to use medicated feed because of how ubiquitous coccidia can be in the environment. Um, And the medicated feeds have a medication, um, usually what we call a coccidia stat. So it's static. It doesn't actually kill any coccidia if there is an actual uh, infection in there, but it basically keeps the coccidia levels static. It doesn't allow them to proliferate any further to cause disease. So if you had a coccidia uh, disease outbreak, the uh, medicated feed would actually not work. You'd actually have to treat separately. But if you have nice, healthy chicks and you want to keep them nice and healthy, um, Mm -hmm. medicated feeds are a good way of keeping the coccidia levels nice and static and controlled. The one thing I also wanted to point out is I know um, a lot of listeners, including myself, have concerns about you know the use of antibiotics. Um, mm-hmm.
0: Coxidiostats
2: are in a kind of a different class. We don't use coccidiostats in human medicine. So the concerns that people have, including myself, about judicious use of antibiotics in food animals um, wouldn't really apply to coccidiostats in the sense that um, there is no analog in human medicine that we would worry about. We're not, the the, the coccidia itself, the Imeria, is what we call epizoonotic, meaning that it cannot um, go from birds to humans. So we don't have to worry about any resistance issues as far as coccidia goes. Birds do, and birds, there are types of coccidia that can become resistant, um, especially after you use some of the, uh, treatments for coccidia, if you kind of use them in a inappropriate fashion, eventually you will get um, resistance. And we do see that with one of the, um, probably all of them, but most commonly we see that with one of the, the medications called amprolium where we do see mm-hmm. some resistance issues. And that's why when people ask, well, I have coccidia in my flock, should I treat the birds? my answer is always like well do you have do you have real significant disease issues do you have all the clinical signs that we talked about earlier or are the birds just have coccidia because you were you brought them to the veterinarian or they they were brought to the diagnostic lab they died of something else but the vet said there was some coccidia in the gut um mm-hmm. so you kind of have to decide if there's no clinical um problems and clinical disease in many situations, the best thing is to actually just let the, the disease kind of go through its normal natural course, um, let the bird's natural immune system fight it off and, and go from there. So
1: the the issue of uh, it happens every single day, Doc, when someone gets on the forum and they say, oh, my chicks have a lot of diarrhea, or oh, they have some bloody diarrhea, and 5,000 people respond, go buy some um uh and, and probably going to call it, I guess, or Ampro. Go buy it and, and give it to your whole flock right now. Um, and in a lot of cases, just may not be the right advice.
2: <laughs> yeah, and this is where there's kind of that gray area there. So, uh-huh. you know, as a veterinarian, if someone calls <laughs> me up and asks if they, you know, what, what, if they describe the clinical signs, I'm not allowed to prescribe a medication without seeing an animal. <laughs> Um right, right. and this is this comes with experience where, you know, I, I know people that have their first flocks that that see the diarrhea um and get terrified and, and, and want to be aggressive and treat and I understand mm-hmm. that logic. Um but I also um The more that I do veterinary medicine, the more I realize that animals, including ourselves, are pretty amazing. Um, I'm not opposed to using antibiotics when appropriate, but we can be a little conservative, and there's nothing wrong trying to wait a couple days um, in order to see if our flock can kind of work through any problems they may or may not have. So there's nothing wrong with, 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 with having that approach. Some people are a little more aggressive, and that's just their personalities, and there's nothing wrong with that, too. They call it the art of medicine, um, and there is some room for interpretation there. Um, but I think with the more experience that you have, you start becoming some, in some ways a little more conservative and letting animals just kind mm-hmm. of hopefully get better on their own. And the big thing I, I'm going to go back to is a lot of the treatments are pretty unsatisfactory, not just for coccidia, for most poultry diseases. And that's mm-hmm. why going to that to that kind of core principle of biosecurity is so essential because you are not, you know, if you use amprolium or you use some of the sulfa drugs, um, you're not going to get the result that you might have assumed that you were going to get. It's not going to be this panacea of like, oh, we just cured our, our panacea, our, our excuse me, our our coccidia issue.
1: That goes back, the first thing that popped in my mind when you were talking about that and the aggressiveness are that, that these birds truly might, because we're amazing, the humans, animals, uh, amazing feet, could get through this absolutely fine and and, and struggle through it and survive and so the first, the first thing that comes to my mind is the the post that comes a, a couple weeks later where someone posts uh i gave i gave garlic and herbs for my coccidiosis and they are cured and uh that that's mm-hmm. so uh, garlic and coccidiosis cures cocc you know, uh, cures us because i gave it to my chicks and and they survived this where as it it may truly just like you were talking about they could could just get through this on their own maybe uh without some some treatment that's, that's when you talked about that i'm just picturing all this stuff we see on a lot of the blogs and forums if you don't mind i want to go back because we haven't mentioned it, it's probably on your list is that um nipping this in the butt a little bit when we order our chicks and have them vaccinated uh for coccidiosis um and then we don't want to use uh, medicated starter. Do I understand that right? Maybe the sixty-second answer of kind of why, if we have them vaccinated for coccidiosis, when we order, we're not going to give them um, medicated starter.
2: Yeah, so that's a great that's a great point to make, Andy. So when you when you vaccinate the birds, or when it's done at a hatchery, uh, the coccidia is a live vaccine, um, which means that you're basically exposing the birds to very low mm-hmm. levels of live coccidia. Um, as we talked about earlier, in the right environment, you're kind of doing that already. Um, mm-hmm. There are different types of vaccines. Um, but the point that I think you're making, which is a very good point to make, if your birds are vaccinated, it's not very common, as far as I can tell, in backyard environments, but in the commercial poultry, mm-hmm. industry, it's much more common. And actually, we're moving more toward that in the commercial poultry industry because there's such pushback against any type of um antibiotic usage, including coccidia stats, which, in, in my opinion, and I think in most people's opinion, should be put in a separate category. Um, that being said, if your birds are vaccinated against coccidia, you do not want to use medicated feed because um, you would be, based the coccidia stat, then would be basically fighting against the, the vaccine the uh-huh. strain of the coccidia. So you want to allow those vaccinal strains, which are m- much more mild uh, coccidia, to kind of, um, to allow the body to mount an immune response. So you'd be doing, you'd mm-hmm. basically be uh, fighting off your, your, your vaccine strain, which is <laughs> something you don't want to do if you were actually going to use medicated fever. That's an excellent point, absolutely. Um, the other thing i point good. out when it comes to medications, um, and everyone, you know, has as, as as different, you know, some people have broilers, some people have layers. You just need to be really careful about what treatment you use so the sulfa drugs uh for example are typically and I don't think they're allowed in layer breeds because of the withdrawal period but they can be used in broiler breeds and then I know most people have have chickens but there are some of the coccidia stack, excuse me some of the um treatments for coccidia um that cannot be used in in turkeys for example so the one drug that i remember off the top of my off my head is uh is, um um it's a sl- slin- uh which cannot be used in turkeys, but can be used in chickens. So it's just really important um, when you're getting information to be very careful about which coccidial medication you're going to use. And proleum is, is used so often because there's no withdrawal period. So that's one of the reasons it gets kind of overused a little. Because it gets overused a little, we're running into more issues of resistance.
1: Okay. Okay. Um... I've got kind of a loaded question here to wrap up with just for our listeners. I'm trying to think the way they may be thinking. Um, But as far as your outline and notes, uh, anything you definitely want to share, you think it's important to share that we have not covered yet to this point before we wrap up?
2: Um, Off the top of my head, I can't think of too much. You know, the only thing that I would mention is um, there is some nice research that shows that um, you can, for treatment, um, you can use vitamin A and vitamin K in water and in feed. So um, mm-hmm. you go to your feed store. Those are, you know, good things to consider adding to water um, and feed um, at the recommended dosages that are on the the back of the vials. So those are things to consider. Um, you know, is, that, I, I is tell- that
1: once is that once you suspect the coccidiosis, or is this? Hey, I'm going to add these as maybe a maintenance at, at, at that age group in the brooder. I missed I missed the beginning part of that.
2: Treatment. So in addition to any other additional treatment, so if you are kind of on that borderline, one of the things, and this is me speaking a little more off the cuff than what the literature says, uh-huh. but for people that are kind of on the borderline, they don't want to use the treatments per se that we mentioned as far as some of the mm-hmm. uh, anti-coxidial medications, but maybe mm-hmm. a potential middle ground to consider is at least try the vitamin A and the vitamin K in water and the feed um, as, as a supplement. Um mm-hmm. You know, I I think in general, it's always going to depend on the immune health of the bird, so whether you're going to get a successful treatment or not. is not just depending on the type of coccidia you have, which we talked about a little earlier, um, but also depends on how healthy that bird is, how far along in the disease process that bird is, um, and and, and issues like that. How bad is the environment? So, uh, Just to point out the original kind of point, we're we're really focusing on biosecurity. But once you do find that that a bird is sick, if you submit a bird to a diagnostic lab and there's something wrong with it, it is a very safe assumption to assume that the rest of your flock is also afflicted with the Mm -hmm. same And the big issue is figuring out what was the source of that. How did that actually happen? And then trying to not eliminate that risk, but mitigate that risk is the is the should be the focus of of you. Not trying to as you as you mentioned earlier with predators, not trying to focus on the the one predator mm-hmm. that might have gone in, trying to prevent that predator from getting in again. Mm-hmm. Obviously, be the the psychology.
1: Yeah. Now um, this will be a little question. I'm trying to wrap my head about around all of the the, the episode today. I'm just. I, Feel that you know there may be some listeners out there, or future listeners that listen to the archive, that are taking this all in. They're taking tons of notes, and so I'll start off kind of by, you know, uh, by asking this. Well, I know there's sounds like some strains of this that are worse than others, but if if it's the number two um, cause of uh, mortality, I think you said here, by that a ten year study, and. Uh, It sounds, from what I've seen in the past 10 years of doing this, that sometimes this can really wipe out a brooder full of of chicks and and kill, in the numbers, uh, pretty high. Um, But yet, um, there there's maybe some valid points to, if we start seeing these symptoms, to let nature take its course and, and not really do anything, you're saying, and I heard you say specifically, even just a couple of days to see, is there, so, so that's kind of what I'm going with, because I can see listeners saying, "Well, now on one point, this is horrible, number two killer, you know, killed lots of birds, but yet, you're saying we could possibly wait two days. Is there, a, is there a, something that would tell us if we want to take that route and not go um, crazy with, i got to go out that one scenario, i got to go out and get this this medication right now, and amperolium chloride, and, and do this versus the I'm just going to wait and do nothing is is after – would you would you do a, like, oh, well, if you've lost half your flock, maybe it's time to treat. <laughs> or if you've, you've, you if you lose three in one day. You see what I'm saying? I'm just trying to see if there's Absolutely. a, uh, a, a meeting, meeting in the halfway between, oh, my gosh, I lost them all because I didn't do anything, versus I really want to try this naturally, vitamin AK, or we'll give it a couple of days, see if they can get to it themselves. But but when should what, <laughs> when should I go ahead and say, hey, i I got to take care of this. This is going to be uh, the long-haul, bad coccidiosis deal here.
2: So this is the square peg in a round hole of commercial poultry <laughs> versus versus non-commercial or or conventional commercial <laughs> versus non-conventional. Um because in a commercial setting, uh, you walk into a house of 10,000 birds
0: mm-hmm.
2: and you know you can open up a handful of birds just periodically even when they look healthy just to take a look at their mm-hmm. guts. And then uh-huh. you can make kind of an assessment already there. And I, I would almost consider that cheating. The great thing about being a poultry vet as opposed to a dairy vet or a small animal vet is you obviously can't do that with dogs, cats, and cows. With chickens, I, you can open them up on the farm, or I can bring them back to a diagnostic uh-huh. lab and have a, a pathologist or a virologist look at it. So the, the the perfect answer would be like, well, talk to your vet, open up a bird periodically. And what I mean by that is, is euthanize them and do a necropsy, which is our, our veterinary term for autopsy, and then make an assessment there. But I have seen flocks where you're like, eh, they don't look that good right now. Let's give it a day or two and see how they do, and then a couple of days later they kind of bounce back. Or, mm-hmm. you know, a day or two later they're still not looking that good, and then I'll open up a bird and take a look. Or a couple of days later they're not looking that good, and it's like, eh, let's start treating them at this point. Um okay. the, The point that I think you mentioned, though, it is ubiquitous in the environment, so all birds get exposed to it. Mortality rates are actually pretty low when you think that all birds are exposed to it. So the morbidity rates are high. A lot of birds will get sick from it, but parasitic diseases don't cause a ton of mortality. And I think where you need this almost perfect storm to cause mortality, where you need the right type of Imeria, you need the bird's immune system a little suppressed, so maybe there's infectious bursal disease going on there, maybe
0: there's a. Mm-hmm, E. coli mm-hmm. infection
2: going on there. So the only reason those diseases are going to kind of persist there is because there's probably something else going on in the farm as far as Got the it. environment mm-hmm. and moisture and all those things. So if you're fastidious about what you're dealing with, you probably might have a little of an issue. and You might say, eh, mm-hmm. rough birds or ruffled feathers, or some diarrhea going around, but if it's not, if you, you kind of have to go with your, for lack of a better word, yeah. your gut to kind of make that kind of assessment on, on when to treat and not to treat. I can cheat, and then I can open up the bird and, and look in, the, in right. the intestine. I can't do that, obviously, when I go to a backyard flock or anything like that, for obvious reasons. Um, but there is no there's no black and white answer to, to a lot of these answers, and, and, and by that I mean there right. really is no right answer. Some, sometimes it's very obvious what's going on, and, and sometimes... You know, the person that wants to treat all the time just to be preventive, not smart because you're dealing with uh-huh. resistance issues then. When you need those right. drugs, you want to be able to use them. And the person that never treats, I would also say not smart because medications are there to be used when we need them, um, uh-huh. and we want to use them aggressively when we need them. Um, but there is that middle ground there that, that is that is difficult to navigate around. Right. I completely agree with you, and I, I see what you're saying about kind of mixed messages a little there.
1: Yeah, I was just I, was, I just kind of always try to ask the questions that I feel like so the listeners are like,
2: oh come on, chicken whisperer, ask this, come on,
1: or, 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 you know, so I'm just trying to listen to this and wrap it around my head and say, okay, what what's the next question that I feel somebody out there is going to know to make the, uh, again the show more valuable for everybody? So uh, that's awesome and, and fabulous answer. You totally kind of uh, agree that middle ground and not every scenario is the same by by all means. So. Uh, man, fascinating. I could listen to this for another two hours, but you've got to go on and uh and and uh do more research and treat more chickens and teach more classes so um thank you very much for joining us today and I will be sharing the heck out of this uh, episode uh, for those who couldn 't listen to it live and didn't listen to the archive because it was uh it was awesome and of course, you can also get the article that was written on this topic coxidiosis by dr Patiski. two thousand and fourteen issue spring issue of um Chicken Whisper Magazine. You can get that free at com. Dr. Patiski, thank you very much for joining us today and we look forward to having you back again next month for another great episode.
2: Great, well thanks for having me I appreciate it.
1: Great, Th- thank you very much Ware Manufacturing has been building quality hutches since 1983 Ware manufactures modern chicken hutches, barns, pens, and nest boxes designed especially for the backyard flock. Ware offers hutches and pens for every yard size and every chicken keeper's budget. Visit their website at waremfginc.com. That's W-A-R-E-M-F-G-I-N-C.com. Or call them to find a retailer near you at 1-888-824-7257. Ware Manufacturing. Stromberg's has been a family-owned and operated business providing quality poultry and poultry supplies to their customers. Today, the Stromberg's family offers over 200 different breeds of poultry, including chickens, waterfowl, and game birds. They also offer poultry supplies for both the beginner and experienced poultry keeper. Stromberg should be on the top of your list when it's time to order your new day-old baby chicks and poultry supplies. Order online today at StrombergsChickens.com. That's StrombergsChickens.com. Want to protect your hens from the damage caused by an overly affectionate rooster? Nothing protects hens better than the Hen Saver Hen Apron. Hen Saver Hen Aprons come in several different sizes to fit both Bantam and large fowl hens. They also come in several different styles and colors. Give your hens the protection they deserve by purchasing Hen Saver Hen Aprons today. 100% of all proceeds goes to provide care to rescued animals at Crazy K Farm in Hempstead, Texas. Purchase your Hen Saver Hen Aprons at HenSaver.com. That's HenSaver.com. Come back. Come
2: back. Come back. Come back.
1: All righty, thank you very much for tuning in today to backyard poultry with the Chicken Whisperer, brought to you by ClonBox Feeds. Fabulous show, love it when Dr. Patiski can come on, uh, and that's what we're all about here. Uh, it's not about the Chicken Whisperer, it's it's not about the brand, it's 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 about getting the right information to you, our fans, our listeners. It's what it's always been about: fact-based, study-based, science-based information that you can actually use. Um, and I've told a lot of people this over the last two weeks, uh, talking with new um, clients, talking with uh, a lot of the feed stores around the country. You know, it is, it's is—it's one thing to post funny pictures and cute pictures of chickens and kids and chickens and, 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 and coffee memes and things like that. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, when you want the final answer
0: <laughs>
1: um, uh, about the health of your backyard flock, I understand because I hear from you. You're coming here. You listen to the podcast. You're reading the magazine. You know, you're reading our posts, uh, and we do appreciate that. So uh, that's that's kind of our goal. We, we're trying to be a medium, if you will, between the true experts like Dr. Patisky, um and uh, you know Peter Brown, the Chicken Doctor, and um, um, Dr. Bridget McRae, and um, the, the whole nine yards. Uh, the poultry show judge with the American uh, Poultry Association, Rip, who was on uh, earlier this week. So you have an avenue, a place to go and get that reliable information to help you raise a healthy flock of backyard chickens. That's we're, what we're all about here, and we really work hard to try to do that. That's why, again, we started factourchickenpoop.com. So it's a place you can go and see some of the comments that are made uh, on these blogs and forums, and then you can see the reply from the true experts to that in some cases, nonsense that people are posting out there. So thank you very much for tuning in. Uh, Send a shout-out to all our homeschoolers that listen to the show on a regular basis and incorporate this into their curriculum. Um, The feed stores that uh, air this live into their store. Um, The archive listeners, there's thousands of you. Thank you very much for continuing to uh, listen to the uh, podcast and, uh, and the downloads. Thank you very much, and we'll return. Next Tuesday, Tuesday and Thursday, two PM, right here on Blog Talk Radio. God bless everybody.